Little Leroy went to his mother demanding a new bicycle. What you need to know about little Leroy is he's a brat. So his mom decided that this might be a good opportunity to make little Leroy think about his behavior. So she said, well, Leroy, you don't have enough money in the bank for a bicycle. And it's not Christmas time, so... I think your only solution is you're going to have to write a letter to Jesus and ask Jesus for a bicycle. So his first draft was, Dear Jesus, I've been a good boy this year and would appreciate a new bicycle. Your friend Leroy. Well, then he knew that Jesus knew that none of that was true. So he wads that up, starts again. Dear Jesus, I've been an okay boy this year, and I really want a new bicycle. Yours truly, Leroy. That's not going to cut it. Wads that one up. Dear Jesus, I've thought about being a good boy this year. Can I have a new bicycle? And there he was, dejected and frustrated, realizing that his behavior did not merit a new bicycle. And so he ran out of the house, ran down the street, saw the local Catholic church, went in, and there were all these icons and statues. He took one home with him, ran upstairs, and wrote another letter to Jesus. Jesus, I've got your mama. If you ever want to see her again, Bring me the bike. And it was signed, you know who. (laughs) Today I want to look at two encounters with Jesus that I hope will go better than little Leroy's. But they will remind us that Jesus does know us intimately. And that the mission of Jesus is for us to know him. To know God's love in our lives, in very real flesh and blood ways. And so I want to take us through two stories in the Gospel of John. They're two stories that are immediately following the text we looked at last week from John 2, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turns water to wine. But as we take this trip, make this journey into the world of John's Gospel, we're going to hear two stories that are very familiar to us. And what often happens is when we travel into the world of Scripture, we carry so much baggage with us that it's hard for us to bring much back. It's hard for us to receive much from the text. We think we know the story so well, and we have so many assumptions about what we read and what we hear. And that's going to be the case today. So I invite you to travel as light as possible to try to remove all that baggage of thinking we know these stories and know these texts. Make room for God to give us a gift today for us to bring something back from this trip. The first stop in the journey is in John chapter 3. After Jesus has done his first sign, and this story takes place at night. There's a knock at the door. It's a man named Nicodemus. 
Somebody we would probably really like. He's a righteous person. He's a faithful person. He's a religious person. It says he's a Pharisee. He knows the law. He knows the word. And he says to Jesus, we have seen your signs and so we know you're a big deal. We know you're some kind of teacher or prophet. And you think Jesus would say, oh great, oh goody. Here's a disciple. Here's a follower. Here's someone I can say, yes, you are correct. I'm the Messiah, the Son of the living God. But what Jesus says is interesting. He basically says, you have seen what I have done, but have you really seen the sign of who I am? He says, very truly I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God without being born again or born from above. And the Greek word there can be interpreted either way. Born again or born from above. And Greek scholars, textual scholars, kick that football around often. For me, I just say born again from above. Because both tend to be true. There is a rebirth. But it is a birth from above. And Nicodemus obviously hears it as being born again because he thinks he must have missed something in health class in high school. Wait a minute, wait a minute. How is it possible for a man, once he's grown, to re-enter his mother's wombs? That, that's not what we learned in health. Jesus says, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God without being born of water and of spirit. What is born of the flesh is flesh, and what is born of the spirit is spirit. And do not be astonished that I said to you, you must be born from above. The wind blows where it chooses, and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus says to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you a teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? He goes on to say, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him may not perish but may have eternal life. Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. And those who believe in him are not condemned but those who do not believe are condemned already because they have not believed in the name of the, holy, of the only son of God. And this is the judgment that the light has come into the world and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For all who do evil hate the light and do not come to the light so that their deeds may not be exposed. But those who do what is true come to the light so that it may be clearly seen that their deeds have been done in God. Nicodemus, this righteous teacher of the law, says, I can see that you're a, a prophet. And Jesus says, yeah, but can you see that the kingdom of God has come? Can you see that I am the Messiah? That God has sent me, His only Son, not to condemn the world, but to redeem it. Can you receive that gift today, Nicodemus? You've come here in the middle of the night, in the darkness. Will you stay in the dark, or will you come to the light? I'm offering you a gift. 
Nicodemus can't take that risk. He can't risk a new experience of the love of God. His identity is too fixed. He finds too much comfort in the traditions and in the religion that he already knows. And so he fades out of the story as quickly as he faded in. Leaving under the cover of darkness. So a little bit later in John's Gospel, we see another encounter. But this time, it happens in the light of day. At a water well, where Jesus will ask a woman, woman, give me a drink. Now, this woman is going to be shocked by this because she's a Samaritan. And so she says, how is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? See, Jews and Samaritans hated one another. And in fact, Jews believed it was a matter of moral and religious law not to pollute themselves by associating with Samaritans. In fact, what's fascinating is Jews tried everything they could to not be in Samaria. And yet in this story, we find out that Jesus was traveling. He leaves Judea to start back to Galilee, and he comes to a Samaritan city because he had to go to Samaria. Now, no good Jew has to go to Samaria. If you're making a trip and the GPS says your shortest route is through Samaria, you pick the longer route. You go around those no good, filthy people to maintain your purity and your identity. You don't associate with them. But Jesus has to go there, not because it's a matter of better travel, but because it's a matter of mission. He has to go there. Because God intends for there to be an encounter this day with this woman. You see, for generations, Jews and Samaritans have hated each other. 2 Kings 17 talks about how when the Assyrians took over the northern kingdom, that those who assimilated in with the Assyrians, they, they become this, this half-breed, these Samaritans, and they're hated by the pure Jews. And then there's this worship war that breaks out. Because Samaritans don't understand that the worship center for God's people, the place where right worship, correct worship happens, is in Jerusalem. But they go and build a worship center on Mount Gerizim. When about 200 B.C., the Jews will go there and destroy that worship center. But the worship war will continue even into the day of Jesus about who has the right scriptures and who has the right practices and who worships in the right place. And so when, when Jesus encounters this woman, he says, woman, give me a drink. And she says, how is it that you, a Jew, would talk to me, a Samaritan? He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. 
And then she goes into a religious discussion. Are you greater than our ancestor, ancestor Jacob who gave us this well? Jesus says, no, everybody who drinks of this well, this water will be thirsty again. The water that I will give you will make you never thirsty again. It will become a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. And the woman says, sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty again. And Jesus says, go and call your husband. She says, I have no husband. And he says, you're right. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now let me stop here. Jesus' encounter with Nicodemus is not just put in the Bible so we have a great argument to win the case on appropriate baptism. It was not put there so that we would have the perfect scripture to put in end zones on NFL football games. John 3.16. No, it is an encounter where Jesus is offering a gift, a gift of rebirth. He is offering the presence of God, a relationship with God in new ways. But our assumptions sometimes make it hard for us to see. But he says, in being born from above, of water and of spirit, we will be able to see the kingdom of God in our midst. And he says, and the thing about the spirit of God is, it will blow where it wills. And it has blown Jesus right here into Samaria with this no good, half-breed outsider. But then our assumptions say, but see, we knew, we knew what she was like. Five husbands and the one you live with is not your husband. What kind of story is this? Dun, 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 dun. Let's drop the sin bomb. Sinner. Some commentaries call this the woman at the well story. Others call it the story of the loose woman. We see her with a scotch in one hand, chain smoking, down at the bar, picking up her next victim. But the text never tells us that, does it? We don't know her story, do we? In her day and age, especially as familiar as she is with religious issues, And as much as she wants to debate theology, she doesn't really sound like a sinful, loose woman who's alienated herself from the good folks in town. It's as likely that she has worn widow's black five times. That a husband's died and the next of kin has taken her in, and that one's died, and the next one's died, and the next one's died. And finally, the guy who's up says, you know what, let's not tie the knot. I want to live. But you can stay here. What if that's her story? 
What if this sinful, loose woman bit is baggage we've brought on the journey? We don't know. But Jesus does. And she knows he does. He knows her story. He knows her life. He knows her secrets. And instead of being afraid of that, instead of resisting that, instead of being humiliated by that, she is inspired and excited and says, yes, I want a drink of this living water. And she does not let the comfort of her traditions and her identity as a Samaritan keep her from risking with a new experience of God's love in this person she meets at the well. Really, Nicodemus is offered the same drink and he chooses not to take a sip. But this woman does and she becomes the first evangelist in John's Gospel. She runs to town and says, Hey, everybody, come and see this. I met this guy. He's told me everything I've ever done. I think this may be the guy. I think this may be the Messiah. I think I just met the Son of God. Come and see. Some of them believe her on the spot, and others have to see for themselves. And they run to get their own fresh encounter with the Word made flesh. Jesus encounters Nicodemus at night. He encounters this woman at the well in the light of day. And there is a night and day difference of how they respond to the gift of God's love that he offers them. One is not willing to leave the comfort they've found in their identity. And the other is ready to take a leap into uncharted territory because this might be the Son of God. I think these stories are helpful as we look at the nature of God's mission in the world. I know you're going to spend some weeks focused on missions with an S. I think this text says, go ahead and take that last S off that word. Missions is what we do and we want to kind of shrink in and say, this is what God's doing somewhere other than here. But the truth is that what God does in Regina, Saskatchewan, and what God does in Rwanda, God is seeking to do in Allen, Texas, in Collin County. There is no God's mission and then missions. There is one mission of God. For God's creation to know and love God and to know that we are loved and known by God. We have the same mission here that is going on in Rwanda. It's one mission. It's the same gift. 
the gift of being born again from above, the gift of living water where souls will thirst no more. Will we let the baggage of our tradition or of our assumptions keep us from receiving the gift? We stay comfortable with what we know. Or will we let Jesus invite us into uncharted territory? I had to wrestle with this question for myself early on in my preaching ministry at Richardson East. We were going through some sermons on the kingdom of God and we were seeing how the kingdom of God breaks forth in the world in amazing and surprising ways. And it was dawning on me that if we were going to be about the kingdom of God in the world, we would have to trust that God was going to surprise us and amaze us if we would just say yes to God's invitation to go and be God's people in the world. And what I came to understand is that you can't ask God to do new things and then expect to do everything the same way. I think that's the technical definition of sanity. To do the same thing over and over but expect different results. If you think you need to lose 40 pounds but you keep going to the donut shop every Saturday morning, that's insane. I don't understand. That number hasn't changed. That expectation that that number would go down, that's crazy. The expectation that God would lead us forth in new ways to reach new people without doing new things is just as nuts. It's insane. The Spirit of God blows where it wills. And we don't get to control it and put it in a box. But if we're willing to say yes to Jesus, he will show us a whole new world. And so one day, I get a call in my office. It's one of my church members. And they say, hey, I was working out this morning at my health club. And my trainer told me that he and his longtime girlfriend are going to the justice of the peace today to get married. She had been married before, had a a daughter that was about five years old. They were living together and were ready to just make it official. But this community that they were a part of at this health club said, it's not okay with us that you just go down and have some sterile ceremony at the courthouse with a justice of a peace. No, we're going to throw you a proper wedding. And so one of the, the women that works out there is a great photographer. She said, I'm going to go home and get my really good camera. And another lady said, my friend's a florist. I'm going to go get some flowers. Somebody else was handling the cake. Some of the trainers moved around fitness equipment and set up weight benches to create a little aisle. And my friend from church said, I know this preacher that might just be crazy enough to come do the ceremony. And he called me. 
Well, my training says the way you do a wedding is you get to know the couple and you make them go through premarital counseling so there's a better chance that the marriage actually sticks. And then if they're not willing to do that, then you just let somebody else do the wedding. But John, are you going to practice what you preach? And are you going to do things a different way and take some risks, even though this may be something you don't know and aren't familiar with? Will you just go to a health club and do a wedding for a couple that you have never met? There's no telling how many times I've been Nicodemus and just said no and just faded out of the scene of God's kingdom coming forth in the world. But on this day, by the grace of God, I was the woman at the well and I said, yes, I want to drink from that living water. I will go. And I went and did this wedding. And since I didn't know anything about the couple, I didn't say much about them. But I said a lot about the nature of God and of God's love and about how marriage puts on display for the world the nature of that love. And I told them that what they were doing today, that when you are choosing and promising to love one another in this way, you are choosing to make marriage your ministry. And that your job is to live out in your love for one another the greatness of God's love so that people might say, you know what, I've never seen God, but I bet God loves like those two love each other. And you should have seen their faces. They were blessed. They were encouraged. They were fused with hope. I didn't come there and condemn them for their choices, condemn them for already living together. I didn't preach condemnation. Jesus said, I've come not to condemn, but to save. And so I said to them, there's this drama unfolding in the world of God's love coming in the flesh, and today you're choosing to be a part of it. And they felt believed in. They felt empowered. They felt emboldened with hope that somebody would see their love story as a God story and they wanted to live it up, live that out and live up to that. And we included the little five-year-old girl where, hey, you're in this drama. You're a part of this story. Well, in a few weeks, the husband called me and said, hey, I'm so grateful for what you did for us. And I think you'd be more effective in, in your work if you had a consistent workout regimen, and that's what I can give to you. <laughs> yep. So then I was the tag-along buddy with the church member that had called me, and the two of us were workout partners for years. few months later, I get a phone call. John, you don't know me. My name's Camille, but I was at the wedding you did at Power Play Fitness Studio. My husband and I, or my husband and I, my fiance and I are getting married, and we want you to do the ceremony. We were so blessed by the words you said to Chance and Jenny. 
and we're getting married in a few months in Cancun. And I said, here I am, Lord. Send me. So I got to know that couple, and we got to do premarital counseling, and then I got a free trip to Cancun with my wife to do a wedding. Not the worst day I've had in ministry. And then six months later, one of the trainers comes up to me. Hey, buddy. Girlfriend and I got engaged. You're the person we want to do our wedding. And I got to do premarital counseling with them. And I got to do their wedding. And one of the couples that was a part of their wedding had recently gotten married. And about six months into their marriage, they hit a real rough patch. And they said, look, we're not involved in a church anywhere. You're the closest thing to a preacher we've got. Will you do some counseling with us? And by the time I had a chance to counsel with them, all that I could really do was an autopsy. The relationship was already pretty much dead. As much as we tried to save it. And so that I did divorce care for two people who tried to figure out how to move on after the death of a marriage. And there was another guy at the health club, Richard, sweet guy, childlike, loving guy. He was a triathlete, wiry, skinny guy. He could cycle for days and days and days. But the demons were legion for Richard. He struggled with mental illness and with addiction. And he would call me at all hours wanting to visit and to meet with me, tormented by what all he was going through. He spent time in some mental institutions. And tragically, one day, as he was raging with mental illness and under the influence of drugs and alcohol, he was killed in a car wreck speeding down the tollway. And this community, this health student, this fitness center that had worked with him and trained with him and played with him and loved him was heartbroken. And they didn't really have a church, most of them. For some of them, that was their church. And so they looked to me to be the pastor of that church and I was blessed to do Richard's funeral. A lot of weddings, a lot of counseling, divorce care, and even a funeral. All experiences that were opportunities to offer the living water of God's love to people whose souls were parched. All because I said yes and took a risk and did something different for a change.
It took me a while, but like Nicodemus, I came around to receiving the gift. That's what's powerful about this story in John is at the end of John's gospel, when Jesus has been lifted up and glorified on the cross, when the love of God has taken the ultimate sign, who is it that comes out of the darkness into the light to bury the crucified Lord? Why? I'll be. It's Nicodemus. He finally comes to the light. He receives the gift. And we can too. The days of finding comfort in the identity that we already know are over. It's time to take a risk and say yes to new, fresh encounters of God's love and grace. That's the mission of God. And that's what God calls us to. For some, that will be a call to a faraway land like Rwanda. But for others of us, just going to be down the street at a health club in North Dallas. And Jesus offers us a gift. Let's put down our baggage, open our arms, and say yes.